So we come now to our passage again, uh, this text in 1 Kings chapter 18. And I want us to uh, appreciate the fact that we're jumping into uh, the second of uh, several messages dealing with this particular time of the showdown between uh, Elijah as the prophet of God and the 450 prophets of Baal. So reading from 1 Kings 18, beginning this time at verse 21 and reading only through verse 39. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only, and left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom of swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sails of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done these things at your word. 
Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we would pray that uh, as we move through this passage today, uh, that your truth would be so deeply impressed upon us in every way. That we might um, have a depth of conviction a faithful faith in you that we would once again appreciate who you are and all that you've done and that you were the same yesterday, today, and forever. Enable us, Father, to be fed by your word, strengthened by your word, that we might be those who would proclaim your word, for your word is truth. Enable us, Lord, then, to be who we're supposed to be as Christians, Salt of the earth, light of the world, and all things bring glory to your name. For Jesus' sake, amen. Throughout this series uh, this about the ministry of Elijah, um, we've been looking at the fact that uh, the spiritual battle in Elijah's day mirrors the spiritual battles of our own day. That is to say that the, the essential force that opposes the Christian faith is paganism. And that here in Western culture, it isn't so much paganism outside the church, though that exists and it's rampant. It's paganism that actually calls itself Christianity. We spent time last week, substantial time last week, actually looking at that, recognizing that, and demonstrating that that happens to be so. Therefore, our overarching theme as we've been going through this series has been stated this way, that even if paganism has eclipsed the influence of biblical truth in this age and in this culture and in many parts of what is called Christianity, the call to believers is to remain faithful to the mission of who we are and what we are called to do. We are the people of God. And we need to do what only the people of God can do, which by the Spirit of God, is to love our neighbors as ourselves, uh, to live as salt and light within this world, to speak the true gospel of everlasting life and salvation in Christ alone, and then because we love God above all, to worship the triune God in spirit and in truth. This is our purpose as the church. When we see the foundations being destroyed and the question is, what can the righteous do? The righteous must keep the main mission, the main mission. Now, we've said this in lots of different ways. We've emphasized this over and over as we've been studying the life and ministry of Elijah. Now, we come to this passage today, and as I said last week, it can be organized around five significant questions. Uh, the issue of the challenge, which the first question is, well, who is truly God? And then secondly, the decision of the challenge who will have our allegiance? And then the terms of the challenge, who will answer with fire? 
And then the answer of the challenge, who actually shows up to show himself to be God? And then finally, the consequences of the challenge, who are the ones that die? Now, uh, as I mentioned last week, this is going to take a few messages to get through. Today, I want to go through the middle questions, just the middle three, and try to answer them. And in answering them, once again, to illustrate what we have said to be uh, very often the essential theme that we find here, that though we talk about the ministry of Elijah, we're looking at the life of Elijah in that sense, the messages themselves are about God. These three questions will show us that God does what he does with us, for us, and to us. In order to require of our faith that we believe and trust that God is everything that he claims to be on behalf of those he saves. Remember this, that the essential issue with respect to faith in Christ is that we actually trust that Jesus Christ has revealed the Father to us, and in trusting Christ, in believing Christ, we're actually saying that we believe God is who God claims to be. And especially with respect to gospel truth, we believe that God will do everything he claims he will do on behalf of us whom he saves. That's why that passage in Romans is so significant. If, if God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, he who delivered up his own son for us, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? To truly believe that God is who God claims to be on behalf of those he saves. Now, today we're going to look at uh, these three questions, beginning with the first one here. The decision of the challenge. Who will have your Allegiance. Now, this question naturally follows what we looked at last week. The question was, who was God? Because once you have settled that question, then it ought to be very clear to you where you should place your allegiance. It should be very, very clear. And so in the second half of verse 21, uh, Elijah says to the Israelites, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. They didn't say whether they agreed with him or disagreed with him. In one sense, this indicates that they are doing that fence sitting on a question and issue that never allows anyone to sit upon the fence. Now, with respect to this matter of allegiance and decision making, I want us to think first about why Baal worship would have been so appealing to the Israelites. Why this form of religion was such a strong pull away from service to the true and living God, to Yahweh. And then there are parallels to even why people today who would call themselves Christians find a similar appeal toward paganism in the drifting that we find within the American church. So, the appeal of paganism. Now, I have commended to you a few times during this series uh, the, the commentaries by Professor Dale Davis. He does an excellent job of pointing out four basic appeals. And so I'm following pretty much his particular four points in terms of what these appeals happen to be like. He points out that uh, the paganism that Israel was involved in, first of all, 
had royal sanction. Uh, their Baal worship was the official worship at that point of Ahab and Jezebel and of the nation. It was uh, official. And things that stand as a kind of official emblem of a nation often have a great appeal to people. Uh, it's their nationalism. It's their patriotism. This is our religion. Therefore, we follow it. But further, Jezebel had made it quite evident that any power or any prestige within the country would be tied to Baal worship and Asherah worship. Uh, you, you don't follow Jezebel in terms of what she believes. Uh, you might not escape with your life, that kind of thing. Secondly, a kind of appeal to tradition. Uh, we, we know that the original religion of the entire Canaanite area uh, was a, a worship of, of a number of gods, of which Baal was one of the chief of all the gods that was worshipped by the Canaanites, by those nations that were displaced under the war that uh, Joshua engaged against them. So it was original. So one can say, well, this is an old religion. This has tradition to it and so forth. People often find tradition to be very appealing when it comes to their religiosity. Thirdly, relevance. Uh, we have to remember that that uh, this is an agrarian people. They live close to the cycles of nature. And, and Baal is the storm and fertility god. Uh, his activity constantly reigns over the regular cycles of nature. So if you happen to believe that is true and you happen to be a farmer and a farming-based society, then, of course, you see how relevant it is to be giving Baal, the one who governs the cycles of nature, his proper honor, his proper due. But the strongest appeal that we find in terms of pagan worship and the Baal Asherah worship happens to be the appeal of sexual freedom. Among the pagans... There was, in fact, a complete freedom from the, view, the, from the rules of the God of Israel, free from every one of those prohibitions that we find stated in the law, which also meant freedom from all the penalties for breaking the law of God in regard to sexual activity. Uh, within the law of Moses, uh, to, to break those laws would be sin and crime, punishable. In Baal and Asherah worship, uh, neither crime nor sin. Further, there was also religious prostitution. So there was that element as well that tied these people to Baal worship. And, you know, it's, it's reminiscent of what's going on today. Uh, in the paganism, in the paganism of Christianity, that which has been most evidently gone is, in fact, the sexual ethic of the Bible. Uh, even back in the early 1990s, the Presbyterian Church in the USA no longer considered sex outside of marriage to be sinful, as long as there happened to be a kind of uh, faithful commitment to one another. If you do it out of love, then you shouldn't feel guilty. Uh, if you're feeling guilty, it's not from God. God loves love. God is love-affirming. Therefore, if you're doing it out of love, it's not a problem with respect to God. And, of course, things have moved far further away from biblical perspectives today. Okay, so these are the appeals of paganism. They find their parallels within our culture today. Now, in contrast, 
with the Lord, the God of Israel. It's not appeal. It's authority. God does not try to be appealing. And the prophets and the scriptures do not try to make a God appealing. Rather, God commands total allegiance because of his ultimate authority and his zero tolerance when that authority is rejected or despised. And this theological teaching, this truth, is deeply embedded in Israel's history. Going back to the time of uh, the Exodus, we know the story of the golden calf. We know that Moses is 40 days and 40 nights up on Mount Sinai. And the people are getting impatient. And they say to Aaron, what's going on? Where's this Moses guy? And uh, they basically uh, want Aaron to do something about it. So he takes their gold, creates the golden calves, and they begin to worship this. In Exodus 32, 26 to 28, we, with that context, we see Moses coming down. He stands at the gate of the camp and he says, seeing all of this, understanding what's going on, who is on the Lord's side come to me? And all the sons of Levi gather around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. This is an indication of God's zero tolerance with rebellion and rejection of his authority. Go to the end of the story of Joshua. Uh, Joshua chapter 24, when he challenges the generation that came up out of the promised land, and as they're looking forward to the next generation that's going to be living in the promised land. And in Joshua 24, 14 and 15, this is what he says. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then in verse 20, Joshua says, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Again, the indication of zero toleration for those who reject his authority uh, and sovereignty over them. Now, what's important here is that the very same ultimate allegiance is demanded by Jesus. Uh, there, there are those who so uh, uh, dismiss the Old Testament God in this sense that they don't recognize the continuity between the authority of God in the Old Testament and the authority of what Christ says about himself in the New Testament. So Matthew chapter 10, 32 to 39. This is what Jesus said. 
So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Christ calls for the same ultimate allegiance on the same basis as Yahweh in the Old Testament. Because we know Christ is Yahweh. We know that Christ is who he says he is. He is himself the living and true God. His ultimate authority is over life and death. So the question becomes then, who will have our allegiance? Now, with respect to um, what's continuing, what's, what's happening on the mountain here in terms of the showdown, we have what, can, what we can call the terms of the challenge with the question, who will answer with fire? That's how this thing is presented. The answer by fire is going to be the ultimate and, and final condition of the challenge. But there are actually a number of prior conditions and earlier terms that are implicit in this whole challenge and showdown. These provide all important context and an important point of view. So let me point out some preliminary terms that actually are part of this challenge and contest between uh, Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal. First of all, note this. Elijah sets all of the conditions of this challenge to give Baal and his prophets all of the advantage. And in all of the conditions, Elijah goes all the way to make the contest unequal with the advantage given to Baal and the 450 prophets in several ways. First, the place of this showdown, Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel is in a range of limestone hills that begins uh, right at the Mediterranean Sea below modern-day Haifa, uh, a range that's, you know, 1,500 to 1,700 feet high, and it runs southeast about 20 miles. Mount Carmel itself, the best we can understand, is about two miles in, inland from the sea. Uh, this, the modern city of Haifa, by the way, is built at the base and up into those hills. And what's interesting is that uh, approximately where um, Old Testament historians and archaeologists believe Mount Carmel was, because there's lots of hills, and the exact Mount Carmel may not be precisely known, but on a, on a mountain that they think is the best evidence for that particular mountain, there's a monument to Elijah. And you have the, the inscription on it in Latin, Arabic, and Hebrew. So in one sense, it's a testimony to the outcome of what happened that day. But in Elijah's day, it was essentially Baal country. Uh, the high places of Mount Carmel of that range were high places of Baal. They were Baal's sacred territory. 
So Elijah is given to the prophets of Baal the most favored advantage in terms of place. It's like giving to an opposing sports team home court, home field advantage. And Elijah does not want this to go unnoticed. That he takes the showdown right into the sacred precincts of where Baal is supposed to reign supreme. Now the second example, and Elijah is quite explicit about this, happened to be the numbers. 450 to 1. Now this is likewise significant because within paganism, uh, much of the power that the pagan gods supposedly had uh, was tied into their followers. They needed followers. They needed priests. They needed worshipers. Because the more priests, the more worshipers they had, the more powerful as gods they would be. And with more worshipers present, more likely to display their power. Greater numbers equals a much greater advantage. And, and then we look at the, the process and the procedures. They're also slanted in favor of Baal and his prophets. Although both Elijah and the prophets are making the same kind of offering, a bull that's going to be cut up, offered to their God, the main thing here is that there's no fire to be put to it. Fire is completely withheld. But what gives Baal's prophets their advantage is that Elijah basically says, you can be up first. Uh, you go first. Uh, you get the best time, and you get the greatest amount of time to contact your God and to fully engage in getting your God's attention in action. So it's worth reading their attempts to get Baal's attention. We see this in verse 26. And they took the bull that was given to him, given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Now, this is not a good beginning. It's not an impressive start. So Elijah gives them encouragement, albeit it's mocking encouragement. In verse 27, and at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Now, in truth, this most likely worked to stimulate the efforts of the prophets of Baal even more, which is what Elijah wanted. Elijah did not want them to give up. He wanted them to do their very best. He wanted them to try their hardest. He wanted them to give the greatest exertion possible that these prophets could possibly do so it could never be said. Well, Baal worship really does work. It's the best religion, but no one has ever done it quite rightly. Uh, no one has ever applied themselves to it quite properly. Elijah didn't want that to be any kind of caveat to what had happened that day. And so we see what is in verse 28 to 29, the all-out effort, exactly what Elijah wanted. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. 
And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now, this is the display that Elijah wanted all Israel to see. All of this intense religious effort towards Baal. But no one answered. No one paid attention. There was no voice. Baal does not show up. Baal does not answer by fire. Now, in contrast, you see Elijah's approach in verse 30. He calls all of the people to come near to him because he wants them to see what he is doing. Each step significant, each step symbolic. First, he repairs the broken down altar of the Lord, verse 31. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. Pulling the people in close, his actions signify this. You all are a nation wrongly divided from the other tribes of Israel. There are 12 tribes, not just 10, not just you that have broken away from the kingdom of David. One tribe, I mean, 12 tribes, one nation called Israel. Second, having rebuilt the altar in the name of the Lord, he gives to the Baal prophets another token of advantage. He digs a trench around the altar. And then having put the bull cut in pieces, properly placed upon the altar, he then has this sacrifice drenched in water. Three times, he has four full jars of water poured over the offering, over the wood, so that all the water runs down and fills up the trench. That's giving advantage to the other side. Lastly, in terms of considering terms and conditions, the action that's going to prove who is God, and this will be fire from the sky. Now, in this regard, there's a, no apparent advantage, first of all, between Baal or Yahweh, because in the first place, Baal and fire have a very tight connection. Uh, you know, Baal is the storm and fertility god. Uh, whenever he sends storms, he also sends the fire of lightning. He strikes things on earth with lightning, and they burn. So the prophets of Baal uh, agree to this proof, because in their pagan belief system, Baal was the god of fire from the sky. But consider the Lord, Yahweh, and fire. Uh, there's also a very tight connection. As the one and only true God, he's also the author of storms and lightning and fire from the sky. But in Israel's history, there's another connection between God and fire that goes far beyond the weather. A connection that is entirely independent of the weather. And that is the connection that Elijah knows. That is the connection that is a pillar in Elijah's faith. That is the connection by which God is going to show himself to be true, the true God.
For instance, going back into Israel's history. When God first calls Moses to be the deliverer of the nation, he appears to him in the burning bush, one that burns but is not consumed. Here are God and fire together, and it's not about the weather. And then in the wilderness wanderings, God's presence watching over the people of Israel at night through the pillar of fire. Totally apart from any storms and lightning, there was this actual pillar of fire. And then at the consecration of Aaron's sons as priest in Leviticus chapter 9.24, we read that fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And then at the time of David, when he sacrifices on the threshing floor of Ornan, First Chronicles 21:26, we read, And David built an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of the burnt offering. And so that's why David marks the spot as the location of the future temple. This is not about the weather. Then on the day that Solomon dedicates the temple, Second Chronicles 7, 1, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This wasn't dependent upon the weather. Now the point here is that none of these demonstrations between God and fire were related to the weather, related to the storms. They are entirely related to the revealed worship of the true and living God. That's why the showdown takes place three years into a drought. There is no rain. There are no clouds. There is no storm. There is no context for lightning. Yet the true God in response to the true act of worship by Elijah, will answer by fire from the sky. Finally then, the answer of the challenge, who actually shows up to prove himself to be God. Here we come then to the matter of Elijah's prayer and God's answer. And we first of all see true faith demonstrated in the nature and content of Elijah's prayer. In verse 36-37, At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God and Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. I read this prayer with my stopwatch. It barely lasts 30 seconds. It's brief. It is also without ceremony. Elijah doesn't limp or dance or move around the altar. It's without drama, especially melodrama. There's no whipping up of emotions. There is no raving on and on. It is without repetition. Elijah doesn't have to repeat this prayer. Elijah also prays to a person. 
not to a force of nature. A person who has a real history with a real people of history, with Abraham, Isaac, Israel, the forefathers of the Hebrew people, the God who acts in history, whose actions move far beyond that which the forces of nature can produce. Because the true and living God is the creator of all nature, as well as being the architect of all history. Elijah prays that God will answer for the main purpose of proving that he is the true God. Secondly, that Elijah is his faithful servant and that he has acted in full obedience to God and that God is acting to turn the hearts of the people back to the true God. Now, in this prayer, we see the nature of true faith demonstrated. It is grounded in a living relationship with the true and living God, who is the creator of all things. It is believing and trusting in the God who's acted in real history. Elijah's faith, shown in this prayer, has in it exactly the substance of faith that the writer of Hebrews speaks of in Hebrews chapter 11. Because in verse 3, we are told that by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Elijah's faith is in the God who is the creator of the universe. And then in verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, Elijah's past three years have been a demonstration every day that God is real and that God has rewarded Elijah for faithfully seeking him. God has fed him by the ravens miraculously. God has fed him by a widow who has the daily miracle of flour and oil. And the New Testament tell us that this true faith in God is actually a true knowledge of God and eternal life. Jesus said so in his prayer in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So we see Elijah's prayer, then in verse 38, we see God answers, and God answers with the all-consuming fire. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stone and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, we could say at this point, this is pretty much God's signature action. <laughs> when God wants to demonstrate he's real, apart from uh, storms and lightning and those kinds of things that are God's activity in the weather, God does something that's entirely impossible to happen except he would exercise his power, and he does so in the context of worship. It isn't a God who simply sends down lightning and fire during stormy weather. Here at the time of a drought, a three-year drought, not a cloud in the sky, no chance of rain, no conditions for lightning, God sends fire in response to Elijah's act of proper worship. And that is God's signature to prove that God 
is God. And in verse 39, the people respond. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, I want to conclude by drawing a parallel here between Elijah following the instructions of God, giving all of the apparent advantages to Baal and paganism and to the prophets of Baal. In terms of how this showdown is completely set up. So that when God shows up, it's absolutely clear to everyone. This is a power that can only be the power of the living God. The parallelist fact is found in the life and death and resurrection of Christ. We know from the New Testament scriptures presented to us in so many ways that the life of Jesus is a life, first of all, of obscurity. And, and then even in his ministry, we see it's constantly, constantly a, a ministry that's opposed by the religious leadership. We see even at the end of Christ's life, his disciples will flee from him, run from him, abandon him in his time and hour of need. We see that when he's arraigned before the courts of the Jews and then the courts of the Gentiles, that there's nothing in what Christ does that is in any sense a demonstration of power. In fact, we are told that Christ is crucified in weakness. And at the point that he is laid in the tomb, even the disciples believed that the cause of God had been lost in Christ. And the third day, out of what looks to be a tremendous display of weakness and defeat, Christ rises from the dead. The impossible happens. The Lord Jesus is resurrected. And that resurrection doesn't happen by any force of nature. It's only something that only God himself could do. And this is why we find that the preaching of the cross of the Lord Jesus is always attached to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are being lost, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. The entire world may look at the Christian faith and the beginning of the Christian faith with disdain, with contempt, with hostility. But brothers and sisters, we know that there are sins were dealt with in a way that frees us up to be reconciled to God and to live with hope in this world. You and I should never, ever be ashamed 
of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we should recognize that when all advantage is given to the world in terms of a display and power of God, as it was during the time of Elijah, only the God who answers by fire is the true and living God. And when all the Gentile and Jewish world was arraigned against Christ, when the peoples plotted against Christ, as it says in Psalm 2, they plotted in vain because the one who was crucified and died in the place of his people is the one who by the power of the living God was raised from the dead. God answered from heaven by fire in the time of Elijah. God answered by raising his son from the dead so that all the world might know. That's what we know. That's where our faith is in what God has done for us in Christ. But goods and kindred go this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, is forever. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for all that you have done for us in your son, the Lord Jesus. Open our eyes to see again and again how we find the echoes of Christ, even in the Old Testament, things presented to us that will be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. And then give us the same kind of faith that Elijah had in you. A faith that knows you as the creator of all things out of nothing. A faith that knows that you are the one who is always diligently rewarding those who faithfully seek you. Father, keep us close to Christ. Keep us walking with him. Keep us remembering to take up our cross daily and to follow him. But to also know that knowing Jesus is to have life everlasting. In his name, amen.